Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm so excited to bring someone that is no stranger to the Jude 3 Project. He's been on here before, Dr. Josh Shetraw. Josh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Did I pronounce, did I pronounce your last name uh, right this time? I feel like I always get it wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're in good company. So I don't know how to correct people it's not a big deal it's chatro so you just you can't look at this at, at the spelling you just have to uh get the feel of, of how to say it like a chateau but just call we'll just go with josh okay <laughs> well thank you for uh, being here with us today for those who didn't see your previous episode uh with us just tell our audience a little bit about who you are yeah i uh I, I serve as a resident theologian in, at Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I also am the director for the Center for uh, Public Christianity here in Raleigh, and I, I taught at a university, at Christian University, Liberty University, for four years before doing this. I'm married, uh, been married for 15 years to so my wife, Tracy, and we have two kids, Addison, who's uh, 11, soon to be 21 in her mind, and my son, uh Hudson who's who's seven that's awesome well thank you for joining us again uh, I'm excited to have you to talk about your new book uh telling a better story I got it here uh what was the inspiration behind this book yeah well one of the things that uh and it's really a it's really a journey that started in two I guess six or seven years ago when I wrote the book that I was on the show talking to you about last time, which is Apologetics at the Cross. And that was a, a textbook that I wrote with Mark, my friend Mark Allen, where we said, hey, there's there's actually something going on here where we need apologetics, but the way that ministers and missionaries, people in, in ministry settings were being trained, there was a disconnect between how they were being trained and then how conversations were actually happening. Mm-hmm. And when we wrote that book, um, a lot of people resonated with it. But towards the end of the project, I was sensing a need, not in a textbook format, but in a, in a book that could go straight to pastors and preachers and people in congregations who were trying to play this out um, in, in kind of real time without the kind of seminary or textbook kind of genre uh, attached to it. And so that was really what I was trying to do here, I was trying to take um, uh, really on the ground conversations and say, this is a model, this is an approach that people can use, 
but really for the last you know seven years i've been thinking about this theologically and and um historically within the history of how the discipline's being uh been done so i that's all kind of in the footnotes so i well actually i use endnotes in the book and so for those who are more like theologically minded reading the book you can see kind of who i'm leaning in on on the background but i didn't want to have that always in the foreground of the book because i wanted this to be something that you know someone who's never really thought much about apologetics could could use and 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 would help them that's awesome uh one of the things you talk about in the book is something that i'm very passionate about listening i think um apologists have a challenging time sometimes being good listeners uh, because we take in so much information and when you know a lot, you want people to know sometimes that you know a lot and want people to know <laughs> what you've learned. So we we start answering the questions before we really get to what the person's question actually is. How is important? Uh, why was it important uh, for you to write about listening um, in apologetics? And how is how um, should we be thinking about listening as apologists? Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a rich irony here, uh, maybe a sad irony here in that, you know, apologetics is a very practical discipline. Uh, I, I view it as a culminating discipline where you're taking, you know, history and philosophy and theology and you're bringing it all together. <laughs> I would add in there's other dimensions like sociology um, that that maybe we need to bring in more so when we think about apologetics, but it's a, it's culminating all these together and then to actually help people and actually have these conversations. But the irony or the sad irony is that, um, you know, apologists aren't actually known for having good conversations. We are known for um, monologues. And when you take that on the street, now there's probably lots of reasons why, um, but when you take that, into kind of the church when people are struggling with doubts or you take that kind of in conversations and, you, and especially if you're trying to teach someone how to have, you know, how to have actually to actually persuade listening is important to actually hear what is being said and what the objections are. But in our age of, um, <laughs> of kind of, um, you know, cable news, five minute battles, um, we, there's something, uh, there's something disarming about someone who says, Hey, I want to know your story. I want to know what's going on. I really want to know why you are objecting to God or religion or Christianity and to step into that and be listeners that, that often will say, Hey, I, this person actually cares about me and it's not, mm -hmm. just, Hey, they're going to, you know, kind of dump truck data on me. I mm -hmm. think so. We've often created kind of, you know, people with giant brains, but maybe at least in the way they come across, they don't have they don't have the heart um, to mm -hmm. persuade. They have the mm -hmm. head to persuade, but maybe not um, a holistic kind of approach that's really going to be effective in late modernism. So I'm I'm really advocating both in apologetics of the cross and and in telling a better story, um, I, I'm as much concerned that we are we have the right arguments as we are the right type of people, and, mm. and that's an important part of 
uh, I think, persuading of anything, but especially persuading to the person of Christ and to the gospel. Yeah, that makes me think about um, incarnational apologetics. Um, in your book, you talk about uh, living in a one-level world. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, here's another example. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm using endnotes to kind of, you know, but I to kind of give the the more academic scaffolding that's holding the book together. And at that point, I'm borrowing from the philosopher Charles Taylor, who is really in his book Secular Age is giving this kind of uh, the big point of the book is what's happened so that 500 years ago in the West, it was almost impossible not to believe to now fast forward 500 years later. And in some sectors, it's not only hard to believe, but it's, you know, Christianity is increasingly strange and, you know, almost, almost impossible to believe. And he's Mm -hmm. telling the story uh, and it's a very long story in the way he tells it. It's a thick book. And one of the things I'm pointing out in the story from using Taylor is how one of the things that's changed is our uh, social imagination. That's a Taylor term. But what he means by that is how we spontaneously view the world. Mm. Which that we reason to certain things, but that we have inherited a way of seeing the world. And it just seems like common sense. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of just embedded in our imagination and that's where we start from and what he's and what he's arguing is there was a time in the west and in most of western history that people assumed this kind of transcendent realm that is woven into and impacts our world angels demons god and so there's this meaning and, and transcendent beauty that's woven into the fabric of our world, but it's attached to the second story, to, to God or transcendence and, and to, to, to something that stands above the physical world that we see every day. But, but the story, part of the story he's telling is now uh, we, because of how our society is built and because of certain movements uh, within within our history, not only of ideas, but certain technological things that have happened, um, you know, very various material causes as well as ideas, is that now it's we almost spontaneously imagine this is all there is, this world that we mm. see, and even as Christians, we are in some sense in this society that forms our imagination. So our values and our aims are primarily here and now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it, we're not immune to this, even though we mm-hmm. talk about God um, as Christians, but we're not immune to this either. And so, but in- increasingly as this kind of first story, this first story, this, this world that you see is all we have, that changes the dynamics of congregation uh, of conversations of, of what's, what seemed to be plausible or implausible. And so that changes the nature of actually how we need to think about apologetics. Cause if we just kind of come in and say, well, I've got these arguments, but their imagination has been formed. So they, they only think, well, no, these are the things that are just common sense. Then we mm. have to find ways to enter their imagination and begin to kind of rebuild their imagination, which is, so 
is a little bit is a little bit more challenging than here are mm-hmm. five reasons for you know God exists. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's the challenge that lays be- that's that's before us. Yeah, that is so so helpful and so rich. Um, you mentioned something in your book called Inside Out Apologetics. Uh, yeah. Can you explain to our audience what that is? Yeah, and so and this is what I'm trying to do, Lisa. As you know, I mean. Uh, so it's one thing to lay out what I just gave you. And when I when I would do that, whether it was teaching, you know, 20-year-old students or teaching a course uh, to, to lay people in my church, they say, okay, I see what you're saying. Because now Christianity, one of the things that's changed now is Christianity seems implausible. It doesn't seem to be good. It doesn't, you know, it's not just that people don't think it's true. They don't think it's beautiful. And so, well, well then what do we do? cultural kind of evaluation of where we stand which different books do that at different levels but then what do we do Mm -hmm. and it's one thing to say okay we need to we need to tell the the gospel story in a way that make that so people see the beauty and the goodness of it and Mm -hmm. reaches into their imagination that all sounds good but then people were saying so what and how do we do that exactly Mm -hmm. And so Inside Out is my answer to that as a kind of what I call mental scaffolding. It's not, it's not five steps, right? Conversations don't typically work five steps, right? It has mm-hmm. more, it's more fluid, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a, it's a way that I teach in the book to say, okay, one of the things we can start with is one, number one, we need to start and have the gospel. We need to understand the gospel story. But then when we're actually talking to someone to begin kind of by understanding their story and stepping in their story. Mm-hmm. And, and the way to do that on a very practical level, there's hundreds of ways, a hundred different ways you can step in that conversation. But one way that I suggest is just to ask somebody, what's your story? Tell mm-hmm. me and tell me where you tap meaning in life. Tell me what, is the most valuable thing. Tell me what your hopes are, your dreams, mm-hmm. and and really kind of step into somebody's world. Mm-hmm. If you do that, I think you're going to start hearing these things, what they're really investing in, what they're loving. And I think mm-hmm. you'll find things that you can affirm from the Christian storyline that, mm-hmm. you know, and also things that you will need to challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so as you're talking to them, asking questions, and, and saying, "Hey, what in what I can uh, in what I can affirm? What are some things that I might affirm, but then challenge? Like, so they have a they have a, a deep desire for justice. Well, from mm-hmm. the from the gospel, from a Christian perspective, I I want to affirm that we might have different conceptions of justice, but there's something about that intuition that's right. But if mm-hmm. they're holding to some kind of like soft relativism, or this is the this world is all there is. Well, then, then whose standard of justice? Where do we get this idea of justice? And then, mm-hmm. what can their story actually deliver? That the story that they've assumed about the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding ways not just to challenge them, but I'm also finding things that I can affirm. But then saying, "Hey, I don't think your story actually lives up to that." And so that's the inside kind of work. And mm-hmm. then saying, "Hey." let me tell you the Christian story. Let me tell you the gospel story. And, you know, you have this deep aspiration for justice. Well, so does this story. 
mm-hmm. yet it, it actually deli- it has the resources not only to ground morality and justice, but it actually has the existential resources to motivate and to sustain a commitment to justice in a way mm-hmm. that doesn't lead to you becoming the oppressor, for instance. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and so because because this Jesus actually the one who will judge is also the the, the ultimate one who will judge is also the one who gave his life and mm-hmm. and set the pattern for um for for us to live out in a way to love our enemies. So so inside out is a way to to both step into their story and then to challenge them to try on the Christian story. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, why is it important that we have a living apologetic? Yeah, because, well, <laughs> talk's cheap, right? <laughs> talk is cheap. And I think that's where this is where things, even if you take that example I just gave, and, and this is where it's, it's really hard, right? Because um, I, I've, been, I've been mentioning these themes, but one of the themes I've been saying is, you know, it's not just that Christianity is un, not true, People are objecting that and rejecting it because it's not true, but they're also now rejecting it because they don't see it as good. They don't mm-hmm. see it as beautiful. In, in, in other words, um, uh, there's more people today who who don't see it as good for society. Whereas maybe 70 years ago in America, they'd say, yeah, you know, Christianity is good because it injects morality into into our communities. And so even though I don't buy the metaphysical claims or the religious, the ultimate kind of, I don't think Jesus is the only way, these big claims that Christianity makes, I do think people would say, hey, it's a good thing. And if, you know, maybe if, if you're having a bad time in your life, maybe you should go get some morality, go to church or something like that. Now, that's not the gospel, go get morality. But there at least was some kind of warmth to it. But now the claim is, hey, actually, Christianity is oppressive. Christianity isn't good for society. And the last place you should go if, if you're, you know, if you're down and out or you need good, you know, you need to find some morality is the church. So mm-hmm. that adds another challenge. And I'm trying to make the argument, and I think we need to learn how to make the argument that, no, 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 let's, let's, let's revisit this and see the the kind of resources that the Christianity provides society that leads to flourishing on both an individual level um, and, and as, as on a communal level. But then the objection there is, you know, well, look around. Christians aren't doing that. They're not living that out. And that's a big problem. Um, and so to, for us to say, hey, it's one thing to, to talk about how Christianity gives these resources, for us to be people who, who love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, mm-hmm. um, that you know the, the 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 argument in the early church was that these Christians actually not only lived and but they also died better than anyone else. They suffered well. Mm-hmm. They suffered well for others, and so there's this lived out embodiment of of the story that we must recover as a church. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's helpful. That's helpful. What are some of the cultural assumptions you address in the book and how can we um, 
tell a better story uh, when addressing these these assumptions. Yeah. Well, so one of them is this kind of um, there's the assumption that uh, to the human flourishing is found by looking inside yourself and finding the true you. This is called the ethics ethics of authenticity. Again, that's a Taylorism, um, and and it's it's saying to really flourish, you have to cast off external expectations mm-hmm. and look into your heart and you be you. And mm-hmm. in many ways, that's the kind of ethos of our age. Mm-hmm. And so when we're approaching whether Christianity is good, as we as I've been talking about, this assumption about what it means to to live to live the good life is well Christianity says well actually if you look inside yourself you you know you can't actually trust yourself you can't just simply say well you know I'm going to look inside myself find the true me and then live that out and that's the kind of that's the ultimate meaning in life Christianity says you have to look outside yourself and conform to 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 to, to the givenness of things the kind of fabric of reality and ultimately that means God is on the throne and not, not me. Mm-hmm. And so the objection there is, um, so that's one reason that people are objecting to the goodness of Christianity. Uh, and so to do that, I think you can't just, you've got to again, go underneath this and say, Hey, the ethics of authenticity can't deliver that story. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, here's the affirmation, even though there's something to that, um, that in, in that that was developed in in some ways, and that came about in some ways because of hierarchical societies that you couldn't move up in. If you were uh, if you were a woman, if you were a minority, or if you were simply born a peasant, you would pretty much be staying in a kind of low, lower social class, or you were there, there wasn't any place for you to. There's very limited opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so there's this rejection of that, and we need to, we need as Christians, I think, to say, yes, that wasn't good, and we're glad for these kind of opportunities. That's a good thing, mm-hmm. and that people can pursue these, these kinds of, you know, equality is good, and yet what's happened is we've swung the pendulum um, to these a kind of extreme, perhaps in partly in response to that. And then mm-hmm. that's going to ultimately have some damage. And we can show that in various ways. And I do in the book that actually there's this deep aspiration to be free here, but it doesn't actually give freedom and it doesn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. And without going into all the details on that, that's again, how to use inside out to get inside of these cultural assumptions. Some of the other ones I, I cover in the book is of course, you know, you know, Christianity is not simply not rational. And so how do you actually dig, dig into that? Um, uh, and, and so th- those are, those are a couple I have, you know, I've around five kind of major ones that, that I explore in the different chapters. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. In the book, you talk about not just, uh, the conversations we have with non-believers, um, and telling the better story there, but the conversations we have with ourselves as Christians. And I thought that was uh, very important to highlight uh, because a lot of Christians need to be told a better story. Yeah, uh, 
why, why did you think that was important? And um, why do we need to think more about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think we missed this. Um, so, so let me frame it like this, Lisa. You know, sometimes when we think about apologetics, it's kind of a tack on, or we think about evangelism as a tack on. So we got discipleship over here, right? This is, you know, learning to study the Bible, sanctification, where's my mm-hmm. sin? How do I, and so, okay, we got sanctification. And so we need to do some work on that. And then here's outreach. Here's evangelism apologetics. And so we know that those are both important. But what, what I would argue is actually we need to see these as more as more together and in match. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason I would say that is because, well, for a number of different reasons. For one is um, we're all living, I'm, I've talked about the social imaginary, how we spontaneously envision the world because of media, because of the, the macro stories that we're told, the marketing, the kind of we're all connected in this, you know, social media. And so whether you're a Christian or not, we're, we're pretty much all consuming that. Um, and it impacts the way we, the kind of narrative that we live out, the script we adopt. And it, it's forming who we are. Mm-hmm. And so if you simply see sanctification is here are rules, you don't, here are rules, keep the rules. Well, that's a bad way to think about sanctification. But if you see us humans as um, as 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 loving beings who are created to be in a loving relationship with God and love others, the greatest two commandments. And but where we go wrong is that we love other gods, mm-hmm. and uh, and we put things in the wrong order. We love things in the wrong order. We get on the wrong storylines and so Mm we name our lives at the wrong things and we live out false gospels not because we confess in a creed that you know we believe in consumerism or or our ultimate allegiance is to a political party but 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 we get on these narratives and these scripts that they become the, the the actual you know they become pseudo gospels. They become false gospels that we live out these stories, even while we confess the right things. Mm-hmm. So sanctification becomes part of sanctification. Spiritual growth becomes about identifying idols, identifying the scripts that we are following in each other's lives as believers, mm-hmm. and and reminding each other how those don't those don't play out well. They're not going to end well. You will always be disappointed by, a, you know, your political candidate, your political party. It will never achieve what it promises. You will, you put too much weight in a relationship, it will crumble. You, you think through achievement, you're going to find the good life. You, know, you will, you will either never get there, or you'll get to the top, and you'll look around and say, "This is all there is." In other words. We do this as Christians. We need to remind each other those are false stories. And we'll, mm-hmm. as I said, we'll never find our rest there. We're, we'll mm-hmm. never ultimately find true joy there. But then what happens as we're doing this, as we're kind of getting to our own heart, mm-hmm. is that we're now able through practice, through doing this in community, 
we're now able to turn to the public square. We're now able to say, oh, my goodness, these are the scripts that my non-Christian friends are living out. And I want now I'm in better shape to actually to enter their story because it's actually mm-hmm. a story that we're prone to live out too and show the dead ends to them. Mm-hmm. Show how the Christian story offers actually true hope and true joy. And so I view these things as together and I would just, I would uh, just historically to lay down a marker, um, Augustine writes confessions and he's doing this. And if you're any theologians watching this, you know, this is, some of what I'm saying is it's very Augustinian. Mm-hmm. He does this in confessions as he's looking back on his own life and he's identifying these false gods and these false narratives. And then when he turns to the city of God, I think the greatest apolog- apologetic work in the early church, one of the greatest works of, of, of apologetics in the history of the church, he's actually then turning to the city and he's he's doing this in an outward public kind of way to... To the pagans and the unbelievers, but it wasn't. I would say confessions and doing this hard work in his own soul actually equipped him to write City of God. So there's mm-hmm. a historical precedent for this, um, as well as um, as I as I think it's a much more effective way to think about apologetics, and and it also will humble us because as we're mm-hmm. in the conversation, it's not see what you're doing and see how I've got it together. It's no, I, I know exactly what script you're on and mm-hmm. I, I tend to be on that script too. And mm-hmm. this is how um, the gospel has helped me. And this is how this story redirects me and gives me hope. That's a different type of conversation mm-hmm. um, with an unbeliever that you feel the same kind of pressures and tensions that they're feeling as well. That can really change the dynamic of the conversation. Yeah, that's so good. Um, what would you uh, want readers to take away from the book that we may not have already uh, discussed? When, when, when people go through this work, what do you want them to take away? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a big question because um, it kind of <laughs> depends on who it is. So let me break that up into categories. I think for somebody who's, Who's um, I think for some people, especially maybe preachers, some preachers have tried to kind of bring po- apologetics in to the pulpit and into their ministry, and the models and the approaches that they that they um, learned in seminary haven't played well. They yeah. haven't worked well, um, you know. If you, and and I would I would hope that that those teachers and pastors would say, Oh my goodness, here is a, you know, again, this is my hope that readers can tell me if I, if it worked, but is that they said, this is, this is something that's going to work. This is something that my congregation, this is something that I can do in my preaching. Um, this inside out approach, it frames about my thinking as I approach a text, I, I preach in a local church regularly. So I would hope that they would bring apologetics in the pulpit I guess what I'm saying is I think some some of the ways that apologetics has been done in the past, there wasn't the clear connection. It didn't really link up to um, expository preaching or kind of typical pulpit ministry. I think mm-hmm. for, for other people, um, and for instance, in my congregation, 
uh, I'm going, I'm teaching through the book right now to them in a, in a study through Zoom. And most, and a lot of them haven't ever been exposed to apologetics. And so I'd hope for them a kind of saying, oh, wow, I can actually have these conversations because their notion was, you know, a PhD uh, who's on the stage and they're, you know, they're impressed, but they can never do that. And also mm -hmm. they, that's not actually how conversations go. They want to have conversations with their son who's walked away from the faith, mm -hmm. their, you know, their, their brother that's always been an atheist. Those are the conversations they're wanting to have over Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays. And it's, they know a debate isn't going to work out. So how do I have these conversations? And so I, you know, I had that person in mind too of, okay, like, I love this person. I want to continue the relationship with them. This isn't one conversation and I can just throw everything out there, but this is going to maybe be years. But how do I have these conversations? How do I begin? And really encourage them that they can. Don't settle for just talking football or, you know, politics. Like You can talk about the big meaning questions, the big questions of life, and this is how you do it. Yeah, so good. Um, how can people get this book? And how can they find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, you can, uh, obviously on the internet, um, you, you're the, the retailer of your choice. You can find it online uh, pretty easily. And then I'm the only Josh Shatro on, on Twitter. And so <laughs> J-O-S-H and my last name is C-H-A-T-R-E-W. Or I'm, so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not on Instagram, so you can just look me up on Twitter. Awesome. Well, this has been such a rich time and so helpful. And I know our audience uh, will enjoy it. Make sure you go grab this book uh, so you can tell a better story. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. You can watch all our past episodes by subscribing on um, iTunes, um, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, you can get our curriculum through Eyes of Color, take an online course, or become a monthly partner all at Jew3Project.org. Remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jew3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. 
So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.